From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we have Margaret Hennock, a former Central Intelligence Agency officer and member of the Steady State. Margaret worked in the Directorate of Operations, also known as the Clandestine Service of the agency, served in senior positions in, at the CIA headquarters and at stations abroad. She is an expert in national intelligence, counterintelligence, espionage, and counterespionage. Margaret retired from the CIA as senior operations officer and manager. Today, Margaret is here to talk with us about her career path, her work in the CIA, and her involvement with the steady state. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. To start it off, could you just briefly explain what the CIA is and why its work is important for the U.S.? It's the prime collector of human, <clears throat> excuse me, human intelligence, which means intelligence provided by human beings as opposed to technical means. Its work is important because it provides early warnings for things like pandemics, trade agreements that are going bad, and other international issues, Russians doing things maybe they shouldn't be doing. It's a policy informer. It is not a policy organization. So the agency is not at all involved in making policy. It's involved in providing the most objective possible information for policymakers to use. It's their choice whether they use it or not. So can you take a few minutes to outline just your education and career decisions and kind of how you ended up at the CIA? I was raised in Los Angeles. I uh, came back to the Washington area for my junior and senior year of high school, which is really a bummer, I must say. Um, went to Northwestern, uh, spent a lot of time in Madison, and graduated with a, an actual history degree as opposed to poli-sci, just because it ended up being easier. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to be. This is the era of Nixon, Watergate, Vietnam, a lot of political activism, as hard as it is to imagine that Northwestern was politically active, there was a lot of protesting and closing down Sheridan Road. I don't know if anybody's Chicago familiar. Um, lots of professors leading boycotts and all of that kind of thing. So when I got it, and it was uh, Watergate time, so Woodward and Bernstein were a big deal. So I couldn't decide, did I want to be a lawyer? Did I want to be a journalist? What did I want to do? So my folks were at the time living in Tokyo. I went to Tokyo for the summer, decided I would go to law school, which was really kind of, because it was either go to law school or get a job. And I was sure not going to get a job. And I came home. My dad had gotten us sort of into Hong Kong for the last three days of the summer. So I flew back to Washington from Hong Kong, which is a really long flight and which was really long 150 years ago when I did that. I got off the plane where it was, you know, 10,000 degrees and nonstop humidity, got myself to the school. And I said to the kid who sat next to me um, in the room, what are we doing? And he said, what do you mean? Weren't you here this weekend? And I had gotten approval not to be. And I said, no. And he said, oh, well, then you're screwed. And I thought, yeah, I am not going to like this. And the first class was about property. And it was, if you're in a whaling ship and you get in a canoe 
and you go out and you harpoon a whale and you leave the harpoon and try to go back and get the big ship to get the whale, whose whale is it? And all I could think of was, who cares? So after that class, I went to the dean's office and I said, this is my name and I want to quit. And he said, isn't it like 10 o'clock on Monday morning? And I said, uh-huh, I don't like it. He said, go home. You're the one who just came in from over. I said, yeah, that's me. He said, go home, get some sleep, come back tomorrow. I said, oh no, I want to quit. He said, go home, come back tomorrow. I called my folks when I got to where I was staying and I said, hey, I quit law school today. And there was this long silence and my mother said, isn't it still Monday there? <laughs> yes. Um, so I went back to work where I had worked summers for the Department of Interior just to have a job. Um, I went back to Chicago after that. I sort of screwed around, went back to Tokyo, decided I wanted a degree in, in international relations. So I applied to a bunch of schools and I ended up at GW because it was the place that you went if you wanted non-academic but policy type, government type jobs. From there, <laughs> I got a job at Stanford Research Institute based in Menlo Park, where I worked in the assessment of Soviet airborne and radar and communications technologies, mostly in fighter aircraft rather than air to ground aircraft. It was contract work for the CIA, NSA, the military, and whoever else there is out there that I can't remember, it was 30 years ago. In the mid, so while I was doing that, it was really fun. I had a great time. I learned a lot and decided that I didn't like to be on the outside. It was a contractor, so you didn't really get to see the whole picture. So I thought, okay, I wanna go and do something else. I think I'll apply to the Central Intelligence Agency. I did. And after a year of screwing around, they hired me. Um, I thought I was gonna be an analyst because I had been an analyst. And so when I went in and they said, oh, no, 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 you're gonna be in the operations side. I said, oh, no, that's not right. And they said, yeah, it is. And we talked it over for a while and I ended up thinking, okay, well, I can start there. If I hate it, I'll be an analyst. Um, I went through all the training. I had a great time. I had a fabulous time. I got super lucky. I had the world's best mentor, which was pure coincidence. He was um, a curmudgeon. I'm not gonna use his name. He's well known. He was a curmudgeon. He was hilarious. He was smart. He was completely irreverent, and that was just exactly who I wanted to be, and it's sort of who I turned into. I um, had some interesting jobs that I am not gonna talk about. I did a lot of stuff on, I had done Russia in college, I had done Russia for SRI, and then I started doing Russia again there. But you sort of moved around a lot, and so I had a couple jobs here, I had a couple jobs there. Um, I, worked a I worked some on the investigation of Aldrich Ames, the big spy in 85, followed by several other big spies. And as a result, I got a reward. I got a great job overseas. I had a great time there. Came home just in time for 9-11, where I uh, had another very good job. These are all sort of boring jobs, I would tell you, but they're not like exciting. They're good jobs for the agency. Um, and then I achieved what I would call a degree of infamy, because I was asked to evaluate the source of the information that the Bush administration used to judge the invasion of Iraq. And I came down on the wrong side of it. And I came down vocally and sort of like a pit bull. I didn't stop. Um, they didn't care. It was really fun to be proven right three months later, but kind of late and kind of expensive and kind of deadly for everybody else. Um, the agency actually promoted me after that, gave me a huge promotion and a great big job. 
And then I went overseas again. And it was just, I have been, I am a lifelong liberal Democrat. I come from a household which every morning started with, it could have been Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush were just evil incarnate. But at that time, politics didn't enter any point of government. You just didn't know. I didn't know who was what. And after the invasion of Iraq, and the more political it got, the more appalling it was, as far as I was concerned. So I came home, and I told the boss, uh, the deputy director of the agency for whom I had worked, that I wanted to retire. I was eligible. And he said, well, I don't want you to retire because we need senior women. And he said, okay, well, what if you just go on a long vaca paid vacation and I'll find you a job you like? I said, as long as I don't have to promise I'll come back, I'll go. So I did. And after about three days of not working, I thought, I'm not going back. But I stayed on vacation. Um, I ended up retiring in March of 2007, which means like I retired when you guys were like five, which just makes me so depressed I can barely stand it. Um, and since then, I've done a little bit of lecturing and working and futzing around, but mostly I did a lot of work for Obama. Um, I did some work for Hillary to get them both elected. One I worked, one seemed to work, the other not so well. Um, and that's kind of it. Could you um, kind of walk back a little bit and give a little bit more background to Curveball? Like kind of how you told me on the phone just to someone who doesn't know anything about it. There was information. It was, it seemed clear, I would say in like, July of 2002, that we were going to invade Iraq. I still have no idea why we did it. But they were clearly, the administration was looking for reasons to go. There, I don't, I apologize if I'm saying stuff you guys already know. There was an attempt to link it to, to link him to Mohammed Atta in Prague, which was repeatedly proven to be nonsense. There was an attempt to link it to nuclear preparedness, uh, the yellow cake, the aluminum tubes. It was all clearly refuted. And then someone at the Central Intelligence Agency decided that this guy named Curveball, who's his code name, not his real name, and he was an Iraqi emigre. I'll go back to why that matters in a second. He had provided information to another country, which they shared with us, that said there were mobile biological weapons laboratories circulating around Iraq, so we wouldn't be able to find them. It's based on a system that the Soviets used the MX missiles that they had on, on uh, mobile carts and you could drive them around and hopefully we wouldn't see them and bomb them. So this was the same thing, but it was a biological weapons lab. And he had come out of Iraq and ended up in Germany talking to the Germans among other people. So when it became clear that that was gonna be a big piece of why we went, he went into Iraq, the head of the operations directorate came to my boss who was the head of Europe division and said, so we need to evaluate this source. So my boss said to me, you need to evaluate this source. So I said to the people who work for me, I'm way too important to do any actual work. You guys go evaluate this source. So I had two extraordinarily good officers working on it and they came back to me after, I mean, it was a goat growth. It was a mess. Um, nobody would share the information, the information they had about him. Nobody would tell us anything about him. So finally, the two people working for me came back to me and said, okay, here's what we've got and it doesn't look good. I said, all right, don't tell me what you think. Let me read it. So I read it and it looked like garbage. Vetting the source of the information is the basis of having good intelligence information. It, there's a long discussion about whether or not you try to judge the information before you judge the source. I would make the case that the information could have come from anywhere. The only way you can trust that the source knows it and can give you other detail 
is if the source really got it. It's like, you guys are too young to have hired a babysitter yet, but it's like anytime you do anything in your life, you vet the source of what you're going to do. So you don't take information that's going to lead to a war from someone who doesn't really have access. It's not hard. It's not rocket science. It's basic. It's a little harder in the intelligence world because you can't like call his mom and you can't call his teachers. You do, you have to be a little bit sort of secret, but it's not really that difficult. And in Iraq, it wasn't difficult because Hans Blix and the UN had been there, God, for like ages. So they had been on the ground. They had seen what there was. Somebody would have found a mobile lab somewhere if there was such a thing at any rate. I kept saying, what's his real name? At least give me his real name so we can look him up. Um, where did he go to school? Everything they had, everything the people who supported him at the agency had was sort of dicey and, and not corroboratable, which is probably not a word. So the fact that we couldn't corroborate anything in the days of uh, Hans Blix having been there, other countries having been there, the Germans couldn't cor corroborate anything. And nobody seemed to think that was important. So I went forward and said to the guys who were organizing this, this is crap. I mean, I don't know what's in Iraq, but neither does he. Um, they didn't like that, <laughs> surprise. And so I'm, we went through the argument. We had a couple of big giant meetings and I went through the argument over and over, which is prove that he, so that the argument that he did know what he was talking about was that he had worked at this facility no indication that there was actually a biological weapons facility. We couldn't prove it. Nobody could explain to me why they thought that. But they kept telling me, he knows where it is. He found it on a map, to which my only answer, and I don't know if you guys have been in Washington, if you drive down the GW Parkway, there is a huge sign that says Central Intelligence Agency. So any idiot who drives down the GW Parkway can say on a map, oh, look, there's the Central Intelligence Agency. It doesn't mean he or she worked there. It doesn't mean he or she knows anything. For that matter, the guys delivering the Cokes to the cafeteria can say, not only this is where it is, but here's what the front looks like. They still probably don't know anything. So we didn't know, they kept saying he can find it. Then they said, well, there is evidence that there is such a technology on the internet, which just made my head explode. I mean, what's on the internet? It's like garbage central. So I kept saying, yeah, well, how do we know he didn't get it there? Of course, they couldn't answer it. Um, the final one was the one that I, I was actually ruder than I usually am. Um, they had evidence that there was a, an explosion at the plant. The evidence was some sort of Google photography, I don't know. And therefore, and he told them there was an explosion at the plant. Again, this whole circular nonsense. I kept saying, well, how do you know he didn't get it where you got it? They couldn't answer it. Um, then they showed me a, <laughs> a picture of like eight guys in hazmat suits as proof that there had been an explosion and proof that he was there. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't see the name tag that says curveball on his has. For all you know, I was in one of those hazmat suits. So I figured, okay, I've killed it. It's dead. It's over. It kept not dying. It was... I'm sure you know this, I did a, six, a very short 60 minutes interview on this and it was like uh, whack-a-mole. I kept killing it and it kept coming back and I couldn't figure out why. At any rate, um, the Powell speech is delivered to us because we get to vet, this is the UN speech on about the 5th of February. Um, we get to vet it because it's got intelligence information in it. 
So I look at it and the whole first friggin' part of it is curveball. So I get my big magic marker and I scratch it all out and I have a big hissy fit in my office and I go upstairs and I have a big hissy fit up there. And somebody calmer sent it back to the boss and said, you can't use this, it's not proven, blah, 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 blah. Next day, or whenever the speech is, we go up to watch it in my boss's office. So I, again, don't know if you remember this, but the speech opens up and there's Tennant sitting next to somebody, I don't even remember who, and there's Powell. And he's got these great big photographs of mobile labs and the plants. And before he even started to talk, my head exploded. My boss um, generously said to me, did you send back the wrong copy? <laughs> Thank you. I said, no. So we called up, we had not sent back the wrong copy, but they decided to use it anyway. So that was kind of, and what the one smart, well, the smartest thing I did was everything's you know, on the computer but not trusting anybody. I kept three different hard copies of every single piece of paper I generated or I received. So by the time this thing was over, I had two and a half feet of paper and I had my own copy and then I had two other copies distributed among friends to hold for me in case I disappeared in a scary accident. Um, so after, and I remember having a conversation with the executive assistant to John McLaughlin, who was then the deputy director of CIA. He said, guess what? We found a mobile lab. I said, really? This is April 29th, 2003. Not that I still remember every detail. And I said, what do you mean you found a mobile lab? He said, we got a picture of it. He showed it to Curveball. And he, of course, two days later, some guys, I think from the weather service or something went over and found out it was like a weather platform, which just made me that much crazier. I know, hard to imagine crazier. Um, and as I said, the upside of it was, it was clear that they had been completely wrong. Why they did it, I have no idea. There are a million versions of, there was other, when it was going on, I really sort of thought, I thought there must be something that I didn't know. This could be um, a good place to go into the questions about the relationship between the president and the intelligence agencies. I think, I mean, I have no idea. I'm not on the inside. Thank God I haven't been. I'd probably be in jail. I think there was, I'm, I'm guessing, and I don't know this, and I'm going to push, I'm going to, what do you call it? I'm going to propagandize an article that I think is coming in the New York Times by a guy named Robert Draper, who is writing a piece on that. Um, I only know that because he did a, he just, I know him through a book that he did. And he said, he asked me for my thoughts. And I said, well, I don't know anything. I have lots of thoughts, but I don't actually know anything. Um, so there is something coming. My guess is that when Trump was told that he didn't win a landslide election because we all loved him, but in fact, he was probably helped by the Russians. He just discounted the intelligence agencies from then on. They became a problem for him. Besides that, he is not going to be constrained by fact. He is not going to be constrained by information. And that's what an intelligence agency is going to do to him. Um, I, ha I have to say, I think Gina's done a really a good job, at least as far as staying out of his line of fire. Um, I assume things are going along normally. Going back to the curveball information stuff, um, you talked about how you were promoted from all of that. But I'm wondering, on the other side, were any people sort of demoted or Don't lowered get me started. Do not get me <laughs> started. Um, doesn't, doesn't that concern you that like people could still be in these decision-making positions after this experience. Do you notice my head exploding? Um, <laughs> yes, it made me crazy, actually. Mm -hmm. And 
I think the one piece that was <laughs> cut out of the 60 minutes segment was when I said, the question you guys ought to be asking is, where are those people now? And Bob Simon, who should rest in peace, sort of looked at me like I had three heads. Um, but in part, in part, the problem at the intelligent, in the intelligence world is, it isn't fact. You're, you're never dealing with like real fact. If you're a, a science person and you say the moon is made of green cheese, you should probably be dismissed. If you're in the intelligence world, it's never that quite that black and white. So the, the reason for keeping the analyst there was weak, but I think it's a bad precedent to punish people for being wrong in something that can be pretty ambiguous. The guy who's the head of the Central Intelligence Agency has a hideous job. It's, it's really probably the worst job in the world because you only go to the president and say, okay, there's some really bad shit coming down. You never go and say, oh, we did a great job. We stopped X, Y, and Z because you can't tell him that. The only thing you can tell him is you're in big trouble. I mean, because there's, there's never a good story. I mean, you can go and say, hey, we stopped, but really, who cares? That's your job. So the, when you go in, and you go in frequently and say, okay, we got information that says really bad stuff. And then, you know, if you, so um, I think that, so that's, I mean, I don't know if that answered your question, Michael, or if I just talked. It did, totally. Um, it's also, I love, it's fun listening to you talk, so there's no problem there. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> but we do want to bring it. a course at Madison? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. We do want to bring it back to looking like fast forwarding past your experience with Iraq and the curveball and everything that happened there, looking at 2016 and the election with the potential Russian interference that happened there. Do you think there's been sort of significant movement towards securing future elections, preventing for foreign influence, which multiple agencies came out and said did in fact happen in 2016? I, in all honesty, I have no idea. I would be willing to bet that if it was possible to block it, the Republican majority in the Senate blocked it and Trump isn't gonna sign on to it. Um, there's a very good piece, which I got from the Madison Capitol. Is that what the paper's name is? Um, oh, Cap Times, maybe. Cap Times. John Nichols? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and it talks about Russian interference and why Wisconsin should be concerned and why Wisconsin should do a bunch of things. My guess is that they're gonna be back at it again. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Chinese are playing now. It would be so easy. And, and it, it's frightening because I think, you know, the fact that Barr can come out and say that Flynn doesn't need another trial and people aren't in the streets, the fact that people aren't in the streets over reopening things, except for with their AR-15s and their, you know, cami vests, camo vests. Um, all right, so can we move over a little bit towards the study? Sorry. No, you're doing great. Um, we just want to give like an overview of the steady state, um, kind of like what types of people are involved, um, what the goal of it is, and then maybe a little bit about why it's so unprecedented. I believe at this point, although someone left me off the invitation to the meeting last night, so I didn't go. I think at this point, the, it's, I think 180-ish former national security professionals, which can mean anything from there's agency people, there's State Department people. One of the interesting ones is there's a high number of career ambassadors, and they never sign on to anything. Um, 
there's a couple of military guys. There's some famous guys, um, military people. The military, I think, has a similar version of their own of flag rank officers, admirals, generals, who are going to do slightly similar but different. There's some science guys. There's policy people who worked in policy office at defense, at state, at the NSC. So there's all ranges of people. I think what's also interesting is that there are all ranges of political people. There are Democrats who've been Democrats their whole lives. There are people who are independents. There are people who flip back and forth and there are Republicans, like guys who can't believe they're opposing. I mean, they actually can believe it. And I think the reason from the national security perspective is that it is so terrifying to think that this guy has his finger on the button, but it's terrifying to think that as bad as Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and company were, they at least sort of had a clue about the outside world. Now we've got a guy who doesn't know jack about anything and is advised by people who know less. So we've got this guy who's in charge of literal life and death. Now, economic matters are life and death in sort of a longer term, income inequality, life and death in a longer term, health, at the moment, kind of life and death. Um, but this guy could like take us into a disaster that's gonna make COVID-19 look like nothing. So it gets the national security community, which generally doesn't agree on anything, all in one place. Um, the State Department people, the agency people, the DIA people, trying to think, and, and then assorted intelligence units from other agencies, Treasury. I believe it's unprecedented because politics are supposed to be separate from government. But I think it's, so it's supposed to be not political. So when you come out, it was one thing when I was working for Obama, nobody, I wasn't public, you know, there wasn't a public declaration that here was a long-term CIA person working for Obama. It was quiet, but this is public and it's an organized, and it accuses him, Trump, of being an existential threat. So that's why it's unprecedented. I think that the goal, you know, it, endorsing Biden, the goal is to get Biden elected. Um, I am surprised and horrified that the polls are, even though he seems to be moving out, that we don't have like a 40% advantage for Biden because until Sarah Palin, I was thinking this the other day, I was horrified by most of the Republicans, but it wasn't going to be the end of the world. It was going to be the end of like some important things that I thought were big deals but probably the world wasn't gonna end. This guy, you know, the, the country will not be what the country is if he has another term. And so the fact that you have, you know, people in coal mines who may not have noticed that coal hasn't come back and isn't gonna, you have people who are, I, I think the groups of people that you have who are still supporting him, are the people who made a lot of money on Wall Street and who are gonna continue to do so because the market's up even though the economy's gone down the drain. Um, to me, when you vote in any election, you vote to promote the values that you hold. If the guy who's there is gonna be more dangerous to your values if he wins, you're voting to promote your own values by not letting him have that election. So I have a real problem understanding the antipathy to Biden. You know, um, again, he was not my first choice. But when it came 
down to him. I also had, and I promise I'll shut up at some point, you know, maybe, I don't know, 334. Um, so, so for me, that's my biggest worry is that I think the, that there's going to be a lot of interference. I think the Russians are going to do it. I wouldn't be surprised if the Chinese do it. I'm sure they're already doing it, the, the Russians. Um, so that's my long, probably not an answer, sort of rambly answer. It's so interesting to hear from you. It's a perspective none of us have ever had access to. Lisa, don't you think I could like turn the whole vote if people just listen to me every day? My yeah, face absolutely. <laughs> um, before we kind of wrap up, I know many of our listeners might be interested in pursuing a career or working in um, an intelligence agency or in the intelligence community. What can students do to maybe <laughs> enhance their candidacy if they're interested in this field? I have to be completely honest. I have no idea. Um, because it's so different. My career was a combination of sort of luck and good timing. Um, I think there's nothing that can, the first thing you have to, oh, whoever says, can you smoke dope and still work there? Oh, for God's sakes, I grew up in Los Angeles in the 60s. And then I went to Northwestern, which was dry. What do you think we did if we didn't have alcohol? You know, really? Um, and when the poly polygrapher said to me, have you ever used illegal drugs? I said, what I just said to you, I said, you're kidding, right? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, I grew up in Los Angeles in the 60s. I went to a dry university in the early 70s. Really? I got through my polygraph in 20 minutes. If you committed a homicide, that could keep you out. If you can, you know, fool them, yeah, you'll be in. Um, it's hard to fool a polygraph. I would say a language always helps. Uh, I used to say, you know, the one of the time, but I'm not sure it matters. I think a language shows that you have some interest in the outside world. And if you have one, then you've had some interest for longer than 20 minutes. Um, I had French and I could read Russian. I don't think either of those matter. I was recruited to go to the work. I was recruited into the agency. So I probably could have had, you know, I could have had the three heads everybody thought I had. I'm trying to think of something else. I, I think being the, it used to be that they gave, you know what the foreign service exam looks like? It's like a giant SAT or what, wow. It's like what an SAT looked like when I took it. You know, when we did like stones and chisels. Um, and it had questions on, you know, a little bit of like, can you think and read a little bit of math? A lot of geography, which, you know, I was raised in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles County schools, you don't learn about anything outside of California. So I knew where San Francisco was, and I knew where Las Vegas was. But if you ask me, like, where was Africa? I don't know. It was over there somewhere. So I was sort of at a, a bit of a loss when I did that one. But it's a test. And if you pass it, you're ahead of the game. It's really just a thing to kind of weed out. They get billions of people who want to work there. They need a certain level of sort of knowledge. I wouldn't say intelligence, I'd say knowledge. Um, and then when I came through, we had to do an inter three, three, I think, interviews. And again, I was recruited, but I still had to go through all this. If you can't get a clearance because you stole something, and by stole something, I mean like a car. Because when they said to me, have you ever stolen anything? I said, I once took a candy bar from, and she was like, yeah, no, I mean, really stolen something. I said, I took some pens from SRI. And she was like, oh my God. She said, have you ever stolen a car? I said, no. Yeah. But I would say it's that kind of thing. Does that, 
Yeah, that's great. Okay. Does that um, sort of help? And I don't know anything else. I think it's any of the stuff that you've learned about the agency from either sort of podcast, for, well, oh, wait, not podcast. <laughs> Those are great. From any sort of social media thing, I would discount it. Anything you've seen in the movies. The thing about the agency, I would say about any job, is you take the job seriously, do not take yourself seriously. Then you're a joke. I don't, I would also great. say if you know somebody, get in touch with them because it's gonna, it, every little thing helps, I think. Great, okay, I just wanna get this in because we have less than a minute. I'm but sorry. I just wanted to thank you so much for speaking oh. with us. Um, sorry to I'm cut sorry you off. I'm so long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much. It's been fascinating to have this sort of insight on the podcast. I'm sure our listeners will find it fascinating as well. So thank you, Margaret, for joining us on 10. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate Bye. it. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.